Good morning. I'm uh, David, one of the pastors here at Remedy. And this morning, we will be continuing our study of the book of John. So our text this morning is John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. I'll be reading from the ESV, which does not include uh, the last part of verse 3 and also verse 4. And we'll talk about that as we get into Scripture together. So if you're able, please stand for in honor of the reading of God's Word. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. He answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We'll pray together. Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, we can do nothing. So, Father, we pray that what is said today will be your words, that what is done today will be your will. And, Father, we pray that what is exalted today be Jesus. Amen. A number of years ago, I had a friend named Grady. Grady and his wife attended the church where Susan and I were members at the time. He worked for a university and was responsible for the admissions and integration onto campus of students with disabilities. Grady was uniquely qualified for this. In addition to the normal degrees that he had, he had been in a car accident that left him a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the uh, shoulders down. For many years after the car accident, uh, Grady would pray to be healed. He desperately wanted to walk again. Imagine for a moment, as Grady did hundreds of times, waking up one morning and feeling he could, you know, where he could feel his toes and move his legs, and then 
jump out of bed and run down the hall. So let's enter into Grady's mental exercise. How would you feel if that were you? How would your family feel? Now think about the man that was healed in our text this morning. He would have experienced the same emotions. But note the reaction of the Jews, meaning the Jewish authorities. God's done a mighty miracle in their midst. Are they celebrating the the healing of this man? He's been unable to walk for 38 years. They hear about the, the miracle and the breach of their rules, but all they care about is the latter. Our text today is a watershed event in the book of John. We'll see a shift in how the Jews view Jesus. Jesus has been a person of interest to them, But in chapter 5, the Jews will go from an interest with reservation to a rejection of Jesus without reservation. Beginning with today's text, we'll see the persecution of Jesus that continues all the way to the cross. Throughout this persecution and clamor, John continues to show us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we can have life in his name. So far in John, we've been given evidence of the deity of Christ. We have the Apostle John's witness that Jesus is the incarnate word. We see the testimony of John the Baptist and of Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel. We have the testimony of Jesus himself that he, where he declared that he is the I am to the woman of Samaria. John records signs as well, attesting miracles in his gospel as further evidence that Jesus is the Christ. The first was turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. John 2.11 says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Jesus also did signs in Jerusalem. But it says many believed in Jesus, but it was not a saving faith. John also tells us about the official who comes to Jesus and says, please heal my son. Jesus says, go, your son will live. The official believes and begins his journey home. Then on the way, his servants come to him and tell him that his son is recovering. And he asks when his son began to recover. And his father realizes that it was the hour when Jesus said, your son will live. Today we'll see yet another sign, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. The the big idea of our text today is that Jesus is progressively shown to be Lord of all. In verses 1 to 9, John will demonstrate that Jesus is Lord over sickness. Next, in verses 9 to 16, that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And in verses 17 and 18, that he is equal with God. So first, John shows us that Jesus is Lord over sickness. Verses 1 to 3 set the stage. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there's in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. 
and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. John repeatedly ties his narrative to different feasts of the Jews. The Passover in chapters 2, 6, and 11. The Feast of Booths in chapter 7. And the Feast of Dedication in chapter 10. This is the only feast of the Jews in which he isn't specific. Now, Bible commentators are all over the place in speculating which feast it is. There are three major feasts that all Jewish males were required to attend. Passover, the Feast of Booths, and Pentecost. So many people speculate that, well, maybe it's one of these. But the truth of the matter is, we don't know which feast it was. But we know that if it was important to know specifically, John certainly would have told us. John is very specific about the location. In Jesus' day, the Sheep Gate was a small opening in the temple wall. There was a two-pool complex there with, um, that was used for washing sheep before the sheep were taken into the temple area for sacrifice. The pool complex is called Bethesda, which means house of mercy. The ESV study Bible says that it's a fitting name given the desperate state of the people laying there in hope of a miracle cure. There were rows of columns around the four sides of the pools and a fifth that went between the two pools. The roof over the columns would have provided some protection from the elements. If you're following the text in the ESV, you'll notice a footnote at the end of verse 3. It explains that some manuscripts insert wholly or in part an additional phrase at the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4. It says, Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was, was uh, healed of whatever disease he had. Now, some Bible translations will actually include this in the text itself, but most versions do not. It's most of the earliest and most reliable Greek manuscripts do not include this. John MacArthur gives us additional evidence that this was not in the original. He says, The omitted section contains more than half a dozen words or phrases foreign to John's writings, including three not found anywhere else in the New Testament. These facts, along with the absence of any specific mention of angels in the rest of the passage, indicate that the section was not part of John's original account. In the years after John wrote his gospel, scribes apparently added this material as a marginal note to present the popular explanation for the stirring of the water. Later manuscripts incorporated the scribal glosses into the text itself. So some Bible commentators believe that the pools were fed by a spring, and the spring would surge from time to time. So this surge created a disturbance in the water. Popular folklore grew up around this, saying that the disturbance was caused by an angel, and that the first person into the pool after the water was stirred would be healed. This explains why in verse 7, the sick man answered him, 
Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. So whether the story of the angel was true or urban myth, the, the point is that the people hanging around the pool certainly believed it to be true. And that's why the area was filled with people who are blind, lame, and paralyzed. Note that Jews that wanted to remain ritually pure would have avoided this area, but not Jesus. He who dines with tax collectors and sinners who touched lepers goes where the Pharisees would not go. There's an application here for us. As followers of Christ, our ministry will take us way out of our comfort zone. We may have to go to places that we would otherwise like to avoid. Because to be like our Lord, we need to meet people at their point of need. Let's look together at verses 5 through 9a. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Verse 6 says, Jesus knew that he had already been there a long time. Just as Jesus knew Nathaniel, it indicates divine knowledge. Just as Jesus knew the woman of Samaria, just as Jesus knows your story. The man had been an invalid for 38 years. This is longer than many people in antiquity lived. Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? The man fails to grasp what Jesus is offering him. He still puts his trust in the pool. This man has no faith that Jesus can heal him. Later when the Jews, meaning the Jewish authorities, ask him why he's carrying a mat on the Sabbath, he deflects blame. He tries to avoid difficulties with the authorities by blaming the one who healed him. In verse 11, he says, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They ask who it was. He doesn't know. He hasn't even bothered to find out the name of his benefactor. Jesus later reveals himself to the man in the temple. Seeking to ingratiate himself with the Jews, he reports Jesus to the authorities. Out of all the invalids that Jesus chose, he could have healed any, any of those that were there, but he healed this man for his sovereign purposes, not because of the man's faith. One of the cruelest lives of contemporary faith healers is that the people they fail to heal are guilty of unbelief. That they couldn't heal them because they just didn't have enough faith. This incident perfectly illustrates God's sovereign grace in action. Jesus didn't seek out this man because he foresaw faith in him. The man had no faith. He didn't even know who Jesus was. Jesus healed him to make his glory known. 
We also learn in verse 14 that this man was sick because of sin he had committed. Jesus gives him an imperative. He commands him to sin no more. Now, this in no way implies that all sickness is a result of sin we've committed. There are actually a number of things uh, that Scripture says about sickness. I'll mention just four right now. First, we all experience sickness because we live in a fallen world. We experience suffering, pain, illness, and death because of the fall. Second, when we experience sickness... It's never outside of God's sovereign control. The classic example of this is Job. Satan struck Job physically, but only because God allowed it to happen. Third, some sickness is the direct result of personal irresponsibility. We might look at the chain smoker with lung cancer or the alcoholic with cirrhosis of the liver as possible examples. As believers, we're told to take care of our bodies. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Fourth, there are examples in Scripture in which people are sick because of specific sin. This isn't the norm, but it does happen. An example is in Acts 12 when the Lord struck Herod with worms and he died because he did not give glory to God. Another example is the man that was healed in our text today. Jesus told him, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. D.A. Carson says, these two clauses, stop sinning and something worse may happen to you, cannot be interpreted independently. They're tied together. The meaning is stop sinning lest something worse happen to you. This that, that some ailments are the direct consequences of specific sins, and that is the most natural reading of this verse. The something worse that verse 14 talks about is final judgment. He encounters Jesus sees his power, hears his words, experiences his healing, but doesn't trust him with saving faith. Our text today is a miracle story, but it's also a sad story. The man that is healed is one of those spoken of in John 1.11 who reject Jesus. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus demonstrates his complete authority over sickness. He speaks a word, and the sickness is immediately gone. Next, in verses 9b to 16, he demonstrates that he is Lord over the Sabbath. Please follow along as I read. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. 
Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. John tells the story of the healing and then adds, Now that day was the Sabbath. It's a comment that changes everything about the story. It's a paradigm shift. It's crucial new information. It's like when your kid asks you if they can have a cookie, and then later you find out the small little detail that they had already had half a dozen. This man who had been sick for, was sick for 38 years, and Jesus could have healed him at any time, right? A day or two would not have made any difference. But Jesus chose to heal him on the Sabbath. So how do we reconcile what happens here with the Old Testament law? Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, give us the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So were the Jews right in accusing this man of breaking the Sabbath? Did he violate the fourth commandment? Remember that the Pharisees identified 613 commandments in the Old Testament. Then they developed additional commands based on the original 613 to make sure they didn't even come close to violating the originals. They analyzed the prohibition of working on the Sabbath and came up with 39 different classes of work. And then they developed a whole set of rules around these. These regulations are not scripture. The man didn't carry bedrolls for a living. He was not working. He did not break the fourth commandment. The Jews challenged the man for a violation of the rabbinic, not the biblical law. All of the Gospels report the confrontation between Jesus and Jewish authorities concerning their man-made rules. In Matthew fifteen seven to 9 Jesus said to the leaders, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus calls the Jewish religious leaders to, to repent for distorting the word of God. They teach that man-made rules earn God's favor. That spirituality is tied to keeping these man-made rules. In short, Jesus confronts them for their legalism. Now, the word, the New Testament doesn't use the word legalism. So let me define it for you. Legalism is thinking that we are accepted by God because 
we keep the rules. It's the terrible mistake of pursuing good works in order to earn God's favor. We must guard against legalism every day. Some people would say that they're recovering alcoholics. I would say I'm a recovering legalist. I grew up attending churches that were pretty good about teaching salvation. But when it came to sanctification and discipleship, not so much. I probably would not have articulated it this way, but I acted as if I was sanctified by keeping the law. Then when I was in grad school, I started attending a church with more Reformed theology, and I met a friend there named Roger Hill. Uh, Roger is four years older than I, and Susan and Roger and I used to go to the Dollar Theater together with Susan sitting between Roger and me because they like to eat popcorn during the movie, so that's a freebie. Um, Roger passed away about a year ago last June, but I'll never forget that he taught me that one of the sweetest truths from Galatians 3.3, which asks, having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected in the flesh? Roger would explain from Galatians that we live the Christian life the same way we came to Christ, by grace through faith. We don't come to Christ in the power of the Spirit, only to live the Christian life in the power of the flesh. Legalism always claims to raise the bar, but it never, ever does. The minute I add anything to Christ, I have added something created to the Creator, something temporal to the eternal, something insignificant in comparison with Christ. Whether the... um, So the legalism that, that I've been describing so far is really just legalism that's directed towards myself. But legalism can be directed towards others too. So like the Jewish leaders, I can place expectations on my, my brother that goes beyond the teaching of Scripture. And if I tie that to his spirituality, that's legalism. Whether the legalism is directed towards me or towards someone else, it, either way, it reflects unbelief. Unbelief that Christ is sufficient for me and unbelief that Christ is sufficient for you. The Jews had taken God's command about the Sabbath and turned it into a legalistic set of rules. But Sabbath rest is not just a rule for humans. It's a gift to humans. The Jewish leaders had taken this gift and turned it into a burden. We must guard against legalism in our lives every day. Next, we'll see the reason that Jesus is Lord over sickness and Lord over the Sabbath. It's because he is equal with God. Verses 17 and 18. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
In verse 17, it, it doesn't say Jesus told them, but Jesus answered them. A charge has been leveled, and Jesus offers his defense. John doesn't give us the accusation of the Jews, but we can tell what it is from the response that Jesus gives. Now that the Jews knew who it was that had healed the man, they confront Jesus. He's broken their rabbinic law. Jesus answers their charge. Jesus could have responded by saying that their man-made rules are not scripture. He could have said that carrying a mat on the Sabbath is not work. But he doesn't. Now, Jesus says something far more radical. Notice the response of the Jews to what he says. He's claiming to be equal with God. Why do they think that Jesus is claiming equality with God? After all, in Psalm 89, the psalmist referred to God as his father. The Jews have obviously understood something from his answer that's easy for us to miss. To understand, we need to go back to the Old Testament. Genesis 2-3 says, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. But if God observes the Sabbath, who sustains the universe? If God is not working, who holds it together? The Jewish rabbis understood that God's rest from his creative work does not mean that he ceases to sustain the universe. The consensus among the Jews was that God works this way even on the Sabbath. Otherwise, the world would fly apart every week. But no rabbi would ever accuse God of breaking the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is not saying that because God works on the Sabbath, that anyone can work on the Sabbath. No, he's saying that because God works on the Sabbath, he can. In order for Jesus' defense to be valid, all of the factors that apply to God must apply to him. Jesus identifies his work with that of his divine father. His father continues to be active, and Jesus co-labors with him. Jesus asserts his oneness with God the Father. In Matthew 12, 8, Jesus told the Pharisees, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The one who created the Sabbath has authority over it. We're told in Scripture that Jesus is working to sustain the universe. We recited the Christ hymn this morning from Colossians 1. In it, it says, all things were created through him and for him, and in him, Jesus, all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 tells us, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. The Jews understood exactly what Jesus was saying in John 5.17. He was making himself equal with God. Not only is he a Sabbath breaker, but he's a blasphemer. This is why the Jews were seeking even more to kill him. The issue 
of Sabbath observance has been dwarfed by his claim to be equal with God. There's a certain irony here. Throughout the Old Testament, the various Jewish feasts and festivals were, if we rightly understand them, were anticipating Jesus and testifying of him. The Sabbath, rightly understood, points to Jesus. But the Jews didn't understand this message. It was lost on them because they didn't have faith. It's another example of what John tells us in chapter 1. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. We see a pattern of rest throughout Scripture. We see it in the fourth commandment. We see it in the promised land rest. We see it in the Psalms. We also see it in the New Testament. Hebrews 4.9 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is a rest that can be entered and enjoyed through faith in Christ. It's a rest from dead works and a participation in the salvation that is offered by Christ alone. Sabbath rest is not inactivity. The Father's seventh-day rest from his work of creation is unbroken, but he does this alongside upholding the universe. He never ceases to do what is best and most beautiful. In closing, we've seen another sign today or a testing miracle in the Gospel of John. John again gives us evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He helps us understand that Jesus is Lord over sickness. Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath because he is Lord of all. What is our response to this? If Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, what implications does that have for us? Do you remember my friend Grady? After the car accident that left him a quadriplegic, he prayed and pleaded to God to walk again. The Lord may still heal him, but for now it looks like Grady will have to wait to have for heaven to be healed. Either way, he would rather be in the wheelchair knowing Jesus than standing on his own without him. Grady has responded to God's call on his life. Like Grady, we can respond in faith. Grady trusts the one who holds the universe together. He puts his hope in the one who died and rose again. So we can respond exactly the same way, not like the Jewish leaders who did not receive him. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing we have life in his name. The Lord of healing invites you to come and be made whole. The Lord of rest invites you to come and be restored. The Lord of all invites you to trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Father, I pray that you would give us faith to believe that it be a saving faith. Father, help us to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen.